just uh, give you a heads up, we're still in John. Uh, we are still in John 6. I uh, am going to spend a little time talking briefly about the entire book of John. Uh, then we'll do a bit of a recap from the last two weeks where we started in John 6, where we're going to end tonight finishing John 6 so that we can tie that together. Uh, and then we will um, spend the bulk of our time in John 6, uh, starting in verse 59. Uh, and then we'll spend the bulk of our time from 59 to uh, the end of the chapter. So that's sort of where we're going tonight. Uh, yeah. So if you guys have been here, uh, and if you haven't, we've been talking about the book of John. Uh, John's unique as a gospel writer. I'm, I'm going to sort of lay into the same things about John weekly, so that as you go and study John, or 10 years down the road if you go and look at the gospel of John, uh, it's, it's easier to have a bird's eye view and you can see maybe what's going on if you remember that I said this every week. So, uh, John's unique uh, compared to the other gospel writers because he gives us a purpose statement. He tells us, I'm writing this book for a specific reason. And that specific reason, uh, he says, I, I write that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you would have life in His name. And uh, that, That's easy for us because of our culture. See, we're, we're Southern United States. We're raised on fried chicken and Jesus. And, and so most of you agree with me. Uh, most of you agree with me. Jesus is the Son of God. Yeah, He gets me into heaven. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, but I bet all of you know people, or are people, uh, that claim Christ, that claim Christianity, um, that claim this religion, but have no appetite for God or the things of God or for Jesus or worship, or, or anything like that. Just no appetite for it. Like, there's nothing about Jesus that gets you stirred up. Like, you go to church, for sure, because we're from the South. But there's nothing about Jesus that gets you just stirred up. Um... And so it leads me to believe that we, are, we live in a culture and we have beliefs uh, that are polluted with wrong ideas about Jesus. Uh, so John believes that uh, an eternal being, an eternal being who is self-sustaining and has existed forever, has no beginning and no end, becomes a human, but he doesn't just become a human like a fairy tale. He is birthed. Right, most of the time in fairy tales, if a, if a god becomes a human, he just like puts on a human suit. Um, but but this eternal being goes through the whole human experience. He's birthed. He's a child. He's an adolescent. He's an adult, and he's not rich. He's actually poor, and he works with his hands. In a time when working with your hands probably sucked, like it was probably harder to work with your hands back then than it is now rudimentary tools, all this stuff. So, uh, John believes that an eternal being has clothed himself in human skin from birth to death, and he has done so to rescue men and rescue men and give them a distinctly different and peaceful and beautiful existence than would have been possible without him having done that. Uh, so, in this gospel, John is painting a portrait 
of this man who in another book that John writes says that he saw, he heard, he touched. He's painting the portrait of this man, not as this religious text, but like, now I knew this guy. I, I walked around with this guy, ate with this guy, I drank with this guy like he knew this guy. And he's painting a portrait of that being so that you might follow him and have a different life than you would if you didn't. And John is using three strands to sort of weave this portrait together. He uses these, stre- these three strands constantly. And the more you read John, the more you're going to see this sort of fleshed out. Um, are any of you music majors? All right, so not a ton. So this is going to fall flat. But I just sort of read about this. It's this thing called contrapuntal motion. N- anything? No? Never heard of that? Okay, yeah, all right, sweet. Uh, so it, correct me if I'm wrong, but do it later. Uh, there, in, in, in a score, you can take three distinct melodies and you can weave them together into one piece, but they stay distinct. They're like three different melodies that are woven together to create one piece. And this is exactly what John's doing. It's beautiful in writing this way. Uh, but John is doing this with his book. And these three strands, if you're going to say he's painting a portrait, he's using three different colors. Maybe you ought to use more, but he's using three different strands, colors, motions in, in what he's writing. The first is testimony, the second is belief, and the third is life. Testimony. Jesus does miracles and teaches lessons in which he testifies about his deity and his purpose. So in doing a miracle, he's testifying, I am God. And I can do what God does. And then he teaches a lesson about him being God and testifying to what he can do uh, and what he's come to do. And then there's belief, and it always flows in this way. As it, Jesus beckons his hearers and through John his readers to follow and trust and believe him fully and completely with no reservations. Nearly every scene in the book of John will contrast different types of belief. It'll contrast people who believe because they want something from Jesus. It'll contrast people who believe because he's doing miracles and they don't really want anything, but they're like, wow, this is cool. He does miracles, whatever. Um, And people who have genuine faith, genuine belief, and they genuinely follow him because they trust what he's saying. They may not get it, my word, just look at Peter. He doesn't get it most of the time. He just doesn't get it. But he's following and he's trusting and he's putting it down. He's putting his life down and saying, wherever you're going to go, I'm going to go. Um, and then he's constantly calling those to take deeper steps of faith. So to take the step from I see you doing miracles to follow me, trust me, give up everything you know, to follow me into a different life than you have here. And then the third one's life. Uh, He asserts that true belief will result in life that is different than existence. It's life that's different than just survival. It's life that's different than just being alive. It's life. So he's going to juggle those around. And so just just, uh, by way of showing you that and by way of recapping what we've talked about the last couple weeks, 
Uh, let's look at John 6, and we're going to recap quickly John 6. I'll show you that in there, and that'll really help us jump into the end of John 6. Um, so, John's uh, testimony, if you remember, about Jesus feeding the 5,000. So there's this testimony of John experiencing something with this guy, and the story is quite ridiculous that uh, there's all these people, 5,000 men it says, so that could mean up to 15,000, 20,000 people because they're only counting men. Uh, have followed Jesus to this certain place, and he's about to teach, and Jesus is like, I bet they're hungry. How about we feed them? And then some guy, Andrew, rolls up, and he's like, hey, there's a kid here that's got five barley loaves and two fish. And Jesus is like, cool, that'll work. So he just starts doling out the two fish and the five barley loaves and feeding everybody. And it says the disciples, each of them take a basket to go collect the leftovers, and all of the baskets are full with the leftovers. Um, and, and that segues into a discourse about belief. Um, Jesus testifies that he is the bread of life, that he did that not just to feed them, but to show them that he is the bread of life and that they shouldn't work for food that perishes. They shouldn't work merely for survival. So we talked about that. Uh, that we get locked into this system that you guys are locked into, that I'm locked into. We're locked into the system where we go to kindergarten to prepare for the next step, which is uh, grade school. Then grade school prepares you for junior high. Junior high prepares you for high school. High school, they're preparing you for college. College, they're preparing you for the real world. You get in the real world, and it sucks because you have to work every day to make a little bit of money. You get a little bit of money, you eat more so that you can go to work the next day. And it's this weird cycle of eating so that you can survive to work another day, so that you can get paid, so that you can eat again, so that you can survive to work another day. And then you do that until your body wears out and your kids inherit all your money. And that's life. It's beautiful. It's great. And he's saying, that's what he's saying, don't, don't work for the food that perishes. Don't just do that, because it's stupid. And so they're like, sweet, Jesus, that, you're right. What would we be doing to do the works of God? Because they're like, he's obviously talking about religious stuff. Do something religious. Be Mother Teresa. And what does he say? You guys don't remember. All right, I'll tell you what he says. That's right. Yeah. If you want to do the works of God, believe in the one that he sent. Belief. Weird, right? Um, what should we do to do the works of God? Believe in the one that God has sent. Basically, trust and follow me and what I'm doing, and it will lead you to something different that has an eternal perspective and has an eternal payoff that is different than that cycle that you're tied up in. Okay, so what did we see? So he said uh, testimony, then we saw belief, then we saw life. And then we talked about two weeks ago, uh, what is the response of the people? So they're starting to contrast these different people that are trying to respond to what he's saying about him being the bread of life and stop pursuing all these empty, fruitless things. And the first thing we get, we talked about this two weeks ago, is smoke screens. They're like, hey, bro, we'll believe in you if you do some more tricks. If you just feed us more food, we'll, we'll do it, bro. Yeah, come on. And so... They just start throwing down these smoke screens. And we talked about, because in that passage, he's also bringing up some weird ideas that we have problems with about 
us having free will and God being sovereign and choosing every single thing that happens from the beginning of time to the end of time. And how those stand seemingly opposed to each other, but completely affirmed in Scripture. And so we have no choice but to affirm them, but be utterly confused by them. And so I told you all the story of how I had all those kinds of confusions growing up. What happens to people in Africa? What happens to people in Africa that don't hear the gospel? What happens to dinosaurs? What's like All these things I would throw down in front of God and say, hey, answer this and I'll follow you. Answer this and I'll follow you. Answer this and I'll follow you. And it was just smoke screens so that I could do what I wanted to do and it was all in his hands. Hey, as soon as you come through and answer all my questions, bro, I'll do whatever you want. Knowing that He's not going to answer my questions. So I was free to do what I want. So then tonight we're going to look at the other response, which is complete offense. Complete, just being completely offended by what he says and then bailing out. So you got smoke screens, you got offense. So he's contrasting these different reactions to what he's saying. Okay, so we're there. Go to 659. John. If you have a Bible, or if you don't have a Bible and you're using one of these, I think they're in the back of the pews. It's uh, page 892. So, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Uh, So, we need to answer the question. Jesus said these things in the synagogue, uh, and what he said in the synagogue was some really weird stuff. I'm just going to recap it very quickly, what he said. Um, Because it gets weird. It says, the Jews then disputed among themselves. This is right before at 52 down to where we are. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Woo! (laughs) Y'all must read the Bible a lot because that's really weird to me. Um, You might think that they are most offended because he's talking about vampire werewolf stuff. That he's talking about Drinking blood and eating flesh. You might think that that's what they're most offended by. And they're probably pretty offended by that. Uh, That's fairly offensive to a Jewish audience. But they are even more offended that he is claiming equality with God and he is reinterpreting their understanding of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. They are really upset about that. So the vampire stuff, that's cool. It's a little crazy. We don't get that. But you're rewriting our history when you say stuff about being the bread of life. 
So this is called the Bread of Life Discourse. Uh, this is also the first I Am statement that Jesus is going to make. He makes seven of these I Am statements in which he claims in a sideways way that he is God. So the name of God in the Old Testament is I Am. If you were to translate it to English, I Am that I Am. It's the name that uh, God gives to Moses when Moses is in the wilderness at the burning bush. And, and he's like, Moses, go take the people out of Egypt. And Moses is like, cool, who do I say sent me to do that? And he just says, I am saying. That's what Jesus is saying when he says that. So he has seven of these I am statements. He's not just claiming his ability to satisfy them. He's claiming he can satisfy them because he is the God of the Old Testament. Okay, so. Jesus uses Old Testament Jewish history to explain who he is and what he's doing. So before Israel, before Israel had a land, Israel actually became a nation. So the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel actually became a nation in Egypt. They did not exist as a nation. The people grew and expanded from this one family into this huge group of people in Egypt in slavery. And then Moses leads them out of slavery into the land that they now possess, for the most part. That they now possess, in the, currently, Israel. That little piece there, right on the east side of the Mediterranean. Um, you see it on the news all the time. And, when they're in the wilderness, going through the wilderness, they are sustained, their life is sustained, they are satisfied by bread that God gives to them which is on the ground every morning and they're only allowed to take what they need for the day and they can't take a bunch they take what they need for the day because they're trusting God to provide the next day and that's called manna and they didn't know what it was so manna means what is it um, in Hebrew which is funny for the name of something but the bread is there every day and so what Jesus is saying The reason God did that is not primarily because he wanted to feed them and sustain them. Because God could have done whatever he wanted to do. He could have said, you don't have to eat for 40 years and I'll just guide you around. You don't have to be hungry. He did that to set the stage for Jesus. The the manna in the wilderness is pointing to Jesus. Just like all of the rest of the Old Testament is pointing and leading to the necessity of Jesus and the provision of Jesus to not just cure Israel's problems, but to cure humanity's problems. Okay, so Jesus is claiming all that stuff that happened in the Old Testament is not just because you guys needed bread in the Old Testament. He's saying the bread that your fathers ate and died, the bread that our forefathers ate and died, was pointing to me. I am the provision of God that satisfies and sustains life eternally, completely, and forever. That's what he's saying. And that's offensive to a Jewish audience. More offensive than vampire stuff. Way more offensive. Because they're not just Jewish people who have a Jewish religion. Religion and culture is so tied up that it's the very fabric of what they understand to believe about reality and life and daily activity. So, verse 61. Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were... I'm sorry. uh, Many of his disciples heard it and they said, this is a hard saying. Who can... Listen to it. This is offensive primarily because they knew if they were to accept this, 
they would have to separate from their culture and families and understanding of God and everything they knew. So what he's saying is just like the fathers ate the bread, they didn't take the bread into their tents and be like, wow, this is great bread. Look at that bread. I wonder what it's made of. I wonder what we can do with it. Can we make a souffle? They didn't say any of that. They got the bread. They ate it and survived. And he's saying if the response to Jesus is not the same, eat his flesh, drink his blood, if, this, if the response is not the same, that you partake of the provision of God without question and completely there is no life for you in the same way that if you were in the wilderness and all you had was this bread from the ground and you didn't eat it you would die so this is offensive primarily because they know if they were to accept this if they are to accept that mentally and completely and say, yeah, okay, I follow that. It's not just they're changing religion. We don't get that. We think you can just hop around religions and everybody's like, cool, do what you want to do, man. They're they so tied into religious culture and life that they can't say, we believe your understanding of God and who you are and what that story's about without saying we have to separate from everything we know and follow you and we lose everything. We are, we are exiled from society that we grew up in. We are exiled from the synagogue. We are completely pushed out of everything. We lose everything if we take that. If we accept that, we have to give everything away. And so, most Jews believed that a Messiah was coming to save Israel. Most Jews at this time were, were believing that a Messiah is coming to save Israel, but Jesus is claiming that he is the Messiah and not all of Israel is going to be saved. Those who forsake the status quo and follow him are those. Those who forsake the status quo and everything that they know and follow him, those are the ones who enter into the kingdom. Okay, let's keep going. 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man? This is Jesus talking. Do you take offense of this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Like this, the only way. You're spiritually dead. And the only way is to accept what I've said. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. You see through fleshly eyes, and all you see is the world, and none of that is going to be helpful to you. The flesh is of no profit. The words I'm speaking to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. So keep in mind, the biggest crowd he's had so far, over 15,000 people probably. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That sucks. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus begins this chapter with the biggest following thus far. Definitely 5,000, but if they're just counting men, it could be upwards of 20,000. The biggest following he's had so far. 
And he ends this chapter turning to the 12 that remain. Turning to the 12 that remain. He has deliberately offended everybody. He turns to the 12 that remain. He's super intentional about what he's doing. So Jesus says, come feast on me. But they have no appetite for that. Come and feast on me, but they have no appetite for that. They have no problem being satisfied by the bread that Jesus provides because they don't have to change anything about what they believe. They do have a problem being satisfied by Jesus himself because that means everything has to change about what they believe. And I think we're a lot the same way. Like, we don't mind being satisfied by Jesus as long as we can be satisfied by other things also. We are in the southern United States, so we live in a culture that's okay with Jesus as long as it's Jesus and. Jesus and materialism. Like We agree about Jesus, but really believe that our value, acceptance, and importance is going to come from the money we make and the car we drive and the clothes we wear and what our hair looks like and what type of shoes I'm wearing. Jesus and social acceptance. We agree about Jesus, but we really believe that value, acceptance, and importance is going to come from having the right girlfriend, the right boyfriend, or the right group of people who are thinking the right things about you. They're thinking you're pretty brilliant, you're pretty hilarious, you're pretty awesome, and all these people are hyping you up and making you feel valuable, acceptable, and important, and you're satisfied in that. Or Jesus and personal perfection. We get caught up on our ability to perform religious activities, to perform social activities, to perform well in school, to perform and perform and perform and be perfect, and to be the perfect Christian who says the right thing at the right time and never does the wrong thing, always the right thing, being able to save our friends and save our family and do everything we need to do so that God looks at us and is happy and satisfied and says, good job. And yet we feel like we're not perfect and completely unsatisfying to God. So we live in a culture that says Jesus is cool as long as it's Jesus and. And the result is we have no appetite for God because we're full on crap. We're full already. We'll satisfy ourselves on lesser things until we have no appetite for Jesus at all. And we'll constantly feast on a thousand different things. And then, and then we wonder why this pursuit of Christ or this church thing or Christianity just sort of feels empty and meaningless. And like the reading of the Bible and the praying that I know I'm supposed to do, it just sort of, it's not, it doesn't do what those other people talk about it does. It sort of feels lame and empty and dumb. It's because we will consistently satisfy ourselves on other things. And then we will make a turn to Jesus for a moment. We'll make a turn to Jesus and be like, well, I went to church on Sunday. And there's just no appetite for worship. There's no appetite for God. There's no appetite for following in line with the things that Jesus wants to lead you into. Because it's just a satisfaction on all this other stuff and then Jesus on a Sunday. And that's consistent. 
That is the way our culture lives and understands Jesus to be. It's Jesus is cool on Sunday, in the morning or the evening, but not both. And then I do everything else I'd like to do to be satisfied and full the rest of the week. And then those times when I am with Jesus, it's not even that appetizing. It's sort of lame. And it's a lame hobby. It really is. That type of Jesus really is a lame hobby. Like coming here on Sunday nights is not the coolest thing you can do. Like there's a thousand other things that would be way cooler than this. Like way cooler than this. It's a lame hobby when it's Jesus and. And what sucks is that many of you will go home and feast tonight on pornography, on pleasing your girlfriend or your boyfriend, being accepted by a group of people who are only going to lead you down an increasingly dark path. You'll feast on clothes, on shopping on the internet, because you're definitely not shopping in neck. You'll just feast. <laughs> but you'll feast, and you'll feast, and you'll be satisfied fully. You'll be satisfied fully. 20 minutes or 30 minutes or a day because it can't satisfy you the way that Jesus is saying that he wants to so so just the point what does it mean then to feast on Jesus as opposed to these other things what am I talking about what, what does it mean to feast on Jesus as opposed to these other things um, and I'm not, I'm not talking about, primarily, I'm not talking about Bible reading and praying. I'm talking about something bigger than that. That's a part of it, but it's bigger than that. That's, that there's a huge part of it, but it's, it's bigger than that. Three simple words. Uh, repent, confess, and stand. When I say feasting on Jesus, I mean repent, confess, and stand. Um. So, so when I say feasting on all those other things, like especially if you are, if you, if you if you feel like you're a Christian, if you believe you're a Christian, you feel like a Christian, you get caught up um, in pornography. You get caught up in doing too much with your girlfriend or doing too much with your boyfriend. You get caught up down a road that you didn't want to go on, but you find yourself there. And what does that do? It makes you feel like you need to run from Jesus. Or you need to run from God or hide from God. Church is weird. You feel sort of detached. There's nothing about any of that that makes me say, I want to run to Jesus because I think he's fully going to accept me and love me anyway. But you go, will go down these, will feast on all these things, and Jesus is constantly saying, come back, come back. Please get away from there. You're not, it's not just going to be terrible for you, but it's actually it's just deadly for you. Like you are just feasting on things that they're not just bad for you. They're just, they're just destroy, like terribly destructive and you feast and you feast and and he's constantly saying come back but there's part of us that is so scared to run back to him because we realize he's God and we realize that's he sees me and I wanted to be different and I'm just not and you feel like you let yourself down him down people down so uh the day I became a believer I think it was a Wednesday afternoon, and I was reading Genesis, I think, and I was on felony probation at the time, and everything 
that I had done just fell on me. Like it fell on me. Like addiction to pornography. The several times I've been to jail. I've been ruining my family's life. Like it all just fell. And I was just like, oh, what am I, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing? And it just fell. I could always believe that God was there, but it never keep, it ne- that never kept me from doing everything I wanted to do. And everything I wanted to do finally hit me as being terribly disgusting to God and terribly destructive in my life and terribly destructive in my parents' life. And so what I mean about feasting on Jesus is that at that, at that instant, Jesus became abundantly clear to me. The reason Jesus becomes a man and dies on the cross is because all of that is, dis- is disgusting and destructive and terrible. And Jesus is saying, I want to take it from you. I will suffer the punishment and the guilt and the shame that you deserve for you. I'll, I'll become a man. God becoming a man, that's stupid already. Like, I'll do that, but then I'll suffer a terrible death to satisfy the wrath of God that exists towards you to show you that God is just but he loves you so freaking much that he'll do anything to pull you back to him anything so no matter how far I went it it just it was like the worst and the best feeling that I could imagine all at the same time and all I could do was say Jesus I believe you and I need you to save me Jesus I over repent That is just as much true the day I became a believer as it was two years ago, three years ago, when I'm consistently falling to lust and just trying to stay like an arm's length away from Lauren, who's now my wife, because we kept consistently falling into lust. And I needed it as much then that day as I did the first day to say, Jesus, I believe that everything you did was for me there and that the Father still looks at me and says, I love you completely and utterly and I will do anything to pull you back. So repentance, while it's hard, is so very beautiful. Feasting on Jesus begins with repentance. Feasting on Jesus begins with repentance. And then it's confession. So the the most beautiful way to put this is just what Peter says. Um, Verse 67. Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It begins with repentance. And then it looks like confession. Where else am I going to go? You have the words of life. And I will literally go wherever you want to go. I'll follow you whatever you want to do. It's the belief that he's talking about. Utter trust. Utter repentance. Utter belief. Utter following. Just wherever you're going to go. Where else am I going to go? Where else am I going to go? Repentance. Confession. And standing. Because 
the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. Everything that exists is opposed to you following the path that Christ has laid out for you. Everything. That's going to pull you back into materialism. It's going to pull you back into a lifestyle you don't want to go. It's going to pull you back into feeling like you really need to please your boyfriend or your girlfriend or that group of people that really sucks, but they're nice sometimes. Um, it's going to pull you back and back and back and back and back. And it's consistently fighting at you every single day, and it doesn't stop, and it never goes away. So it looks like repentance, it looks like confession, and it looks like standing, and the problem is, is you're going to fall. So it looks like repentance again, it looks like confession, it looks like standing. That's what feasting on Jesus is. As you read and as you pray, you stand much better. As you're in community, you stand much better. But we never lose our need to repent and say, I need all of that all over again all over again. And thank you, Jesus, that you've done this and satisfied God so that all I get from him is love and guidance and a beautiful existence that Jesus says lasts for all eternity. That's what I mean by feasting on Jesus. Repentance, confession, and standing. And it is necessary every single day.